34. And I'm actually going to be using this as a kind of primer for what our topic is tonight. So there's a direct correlation, in my opinion, between the event that is about to transpire in the life of Peter that will help us understand this thing called the wall of faith. That's the way I'm titling it. And we're going to read uh, the segment in the Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress that you have in the inside of your bulletin as well, just to help us recap. But the study is called the wall of faith, the wall of of faith and one might ask why is that but it will become obvious as we begin to understand the way that this framing this account this allegory that's set before us is laid out and uh, you'll see in your outline the wall of faith and I talk about the mystery of iniquity and godliness these are two mysteries that are laid out explicitly in scripture one is in second thessalonians chapter two the other one is in first timothy chapter three great is the mystery of godliness the other one the mystery of iniquity these are two um, diametrically opposed entity systems perpetually working in tension working in opposition uh, against god and his glory and against the people of god uh, quite frankly and the word I want you to keep in mind is the word mystery, the mystery of iniquity and the mystery of godliness. And of course, the underlying or what we would call substratum doctrine that's going to be clearly elicited from our account is the doctrine of the preservation of the saints. And I give a little quip under point number uh, under our Luke text of 22 verses 23 and 24. I've stated this before. Under the doctrine of the preservation of the saints, there are two sides. One is preservation. The other one is perseverance. That's going to be important for you to learn how to distinguish those two sides because they don't mean the same thing. They actually are designed to be couplets that describe why it is that a believer begins in faith and finishes in faith. Uh, how it is that a believer makes it from the call of grace to glory how it is that the child of god uh, endures unto the end it's called the preservation of the saints now the preservation of the saints is to be described as our outline puts it the passive side of the believer's experience in being kept being kept he or she or they are being kept through horrendous testings which are by God and his providence from falling away and you could put an ellipses there falling away utterly so I want to redefine that for you so you can grasp it the simple term is really um, something you would hear constantly in Reformation theology in post Catholicism in the era between uh, the uh, breakup of the Catholic Church in the uh, 15th century and the evangelical church emerging in the 19th century is a difference between the evangelical church which our country is a massive part of and the reformation period that was a precursor to the evangelical church and it's important that you know it because like for some of you all you have ever known is the evangelical church the, all you have ever known is american christianity uh, in terms of what we would call 
um, independent churches that are non-Catholic, Baptist churches, uh, uh, Pentecostal churches, churches of God in Christ, uh, and, and other churches like that. These really sprinkled the landscape in the 16th, 17th century here in America and have been prolific in America for a long time and then kind of spread back to Europe where it actually started. Uh, the evangelical church has to be understood by you as significantly different than the Reformation churches. Even though the evangelical church would not exist without the Reformation churches, and one could argue the Reformation churches would not exist if it were not for the diabolical collapse of Catholicism. Um, and evil will often be the grounds of a good emerging out of it. An evil event will often be the grounds of a good emerging, emerging out of it, um, which is what we are hoping and praying for about the evil that is presently uh, vocalizing a reset around the world. We are hoping and praying for a good to come out of it, uh, if you will, that while the evil one means it for evil, God means it for good. So Reformation theology is really the history of recovering the Bible as the central grounds of God's divine revelation to us and how we might live before him in the redemptive mercies that are given to us in Christ. Prior to the Reformation, prior to, uh, let's say, the hallmark of 1517 when Luther nailed his theses on the uh, door in Wittenberg, Germany and began a war with Rome around the doctrines that he knew were contrary to scripture, which had led the church back into works religion, which you heard me talk about on Sunday so clearly um, in terms of I argue that Catholicism is actually a neo-Judaism. It's a second construct of a Judaistic system of hierarchical leadership that is patriarchal in nature, but contrary to the gospel. And therefore, the subordinates in the Catholic system are saved by works and not by grace alone. And that kind of outcome could only be the consequence of not having the Bible as its fundamental anchor for absolute truth, okay? And so uh, men like uh, Wycliffe and Huss and, and um, others such as Melanchthon and, 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 and Calvin and, and, uh, and, uh, and Luther and others gradually developed an argument against the Catholic Church of which they were a part that they had departed from the gospel. And they argued with them that the gospel is not Christ plus, and the gospel is not the word of God plus tradition. And so what happened was what we call a reformation. The reformation was that they strove to try to recover a biblical-based, God-centered, Christ-exalting gospel in the Roman Catholic system, but eventually had to leave it because Roman Catholicism was too formidable in its structure, in its power, in its um, being embedded in politics to humble itself and acknowledge that what it had done was what had occurred in the days of Josiah 
uh, when Josiah discovered that Israel for hundreds of years had departed from the gospel and he didn't know why and he said to do search and some of the people found the Bible under the treasury in the tabernacle and when the Bible was brought to him and it was read to him, Josiah now is only about 16 years old, he reads the Bible and discovers how disobedient the whole nation was. This is what we call the work of the Spirit in bringing us to a conviction of sin. And a reformation took place in Josiah's day. You can read that in Second Chronicles around 28. And he got rid of all the idols. He got rid of all the pagan gods. He got rid of all the abominations of all of the whorehouses and sodomite houses that emerged in that day. It's very important to know that your Bible teaches recapitulation, that that which has been is also present. This is why we can see the same things emerging in our world today, a proliferation of massive idolatry everywhere that manifests itself the same way. Romans chapter one. I, I say all that to, to say, when we use the term the preservation of the saints, it may go over your head, but you should not want it to. You should wanna understand the preservation of the saints is a declaration that when God starts a work of grace in the life of his people, he will finish it, okay? That's the declaration. And you might also think that that's insignificant, but people were killed for that doctrine, okay? So you, you need to know. You might think that you, you live in a society where they were very tolerant of the gospel proper, but that's not the case. And what we're gonna learn on this Sunday as we advance in Paul's argument to the Judaizers as to why God presents to the world a righteousness outside of human contribution is because of that. Man will be right with God in his own eyes based upon his good works. And he'll destroy the world before he let God, lets God have the glory in our salvation on the grounds of something that God does outside of us. This is how serious the gospel is. And it's quite interesting. The gospel uh, was the grounds upon which Jesus was killed. Jesus brought grace and truth. Moses brought the law. They didn't kill him. Jesus brought grace and truth. They killed him. And then they killed all of his disciples. Well, what all that means is that you and I have a very volatile um, thing in our hands when we believe the gospel. The gospel is a volatile thing in a world that's controlled by satanic systems. Okay, you, you kind of need to know that. You need to know how privileged you are so that you don't lose it. We'll be down the road with Pilgrim after we get out of the interpreter's house and you'll see that he failed to heed the instructions and f fell asleep in the delectable mountains and lost his scroll for a moment, which a lot of Christians do. They end up losing what the Bible says and meandering in the fields of, uh, of slothfulness and drowsiness and uh, in some cases fall asleep and never wake up again. That's the warning that Pilgrim was given. Do not fall asleep in the delectable mountains. You will not wake up again. Um, and, and where you and I are, we're in a society today where we can definitely see the drowsiness, drowsiness, if not total sleep in terms of the authority of God's word and the seriousness of biblical truth, if that makes sense. So when I use the term, when pastor uses the term preservation of the saints, it's one side of two words, preservation and then what? Perseverance. Do not forget those terms. They're both biblical terms. Jude one twenty four describes preservation. Now unto him 
that is able to keep you. That's the word for preservation. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling away completely and therefore presenting you before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Now unto him that's able to keep you from falling away and present you in his own presence. That, that's, that's a start-finish motto. Does that make sense? Right, now it, within that proposition, what you need to grasp quickly is that the onus of that proposition being true puts the burden on God to bring it to pass, which means the object of God's preserving grace is passive in being preserved unto glory. Did that make sense? He's passive. She's passive. The idea of preserving is the idea of protecting. You protect something that you know is fragile. You protect it from uh, the pressures that could break it down or harm it. And so m most of us have had grandmothers who have uh, made preserves, and we know what that is, right? You cook the preserves, you get it to a certain temperature, you put it in the jar, and you seal it to keep it from spoiling until it's time to be eaten. And you could preserve it for years. And the believer is said to be kept as well from spoiling, right? That, but it's a passive act on your part. That's not for you. Your part is to persevere, right? And so what you're about to get with our analogy, which I'm just going to only go into some categories of it because it's so rich, is that the analogy is calling you and I to understand something about the wall of faith. Do you guys see the term? The wall of faith. I'll explain that as we go. Listen to the language hour because there are going to be two case studies if you want to keep in mind that's going to help us work through uh, Wednesday and Friday. The first case study is going to be Peter. The other case study is going to be Job. Both of these men are going to help us understand what happens at the wall of faith when trials emerge. What happens at the wall of faith? And I'm hoping that you'll be able to identify with it a little bit, though you may not. You may not have gone through a deep enough trial for you to understand what this metaphor is about. It's quite possible that God hasn't taken you through that yet. But like, like Pilgrim hadn't gone through it yet. But when we get down the road, he's going to go through it. I can, I can show you where he's going to end up in a situation where he is going to be at this mystery of iniquity and godliness, struggling in a conflict that he's not going to be able to negotiate. Let me read the, the account in our Luke text, and then I'll just kind of frame some things for you, and I'm hoping you guys will be primed and ready to go in deeper tomorrow night. Luke 22, verse 28. Jesus is speaking to the eleven. And he's telling them, I'm getting ready to die, but let me, let, me, let me promise you something. He says, you are they which have continued with me in my what? Right, it should be trials. Parasmus is the Greek term for both words. This is why terms are uh, equivocal. Terms can mean one thing one way and another thing the other way. So I want you to grasp that because we're in class tonight, right? We're in class, right? So sometimes in the King James Bible, it will use the word trial, and then at other times it will use the word temptation. And there won't be necessarily any really logic behind it. Same Greek word, okay? Um, and so you'll have to understand the context. But as I've shared with you, I've told you that when you and I are going through trials, what do trials do? 
They drive you to God. When you and I are going through a temptations, what are temptations designed to do? Drive you away from God. And you have to be able to discern what you are going through at that present time as to how to recognize the difference between a trial and a temptation. This is what this firewall example is going to be about. Okay, it's going to be very important for you and I to know what a firewall is, what a, a wall of faith is all about in that context. So notice what he goes on to say in verse 29. And I appoint unto you a kingdom as my father hath appointed unto me. So this is Jesus telling the disciples, you guys are getting ready to roll. You hung out with me. I'm just about done. And, uh, and you're going to be appointed. You're going to be elevated. You're going to be established. You're going to be rulers that you may eat and drink at my table in my what? At my table in my what? Which means Jesus is speaking to them as a monarch. He's speaking to them as David's son, the king of Israel, as I've been asserting for the longest, he is the final promise of Revelation twenty-two sixteen. I'm the bright and morning star, right? I'm the first and the last. I am the son of David. This, this is the one to whom the promise is made to Jesus, right? No, so Jesus is a what? He's a king. He does have a what? A kingdom. And he does have servants who serve in that kingdom. And, and we really need to be able to grasp that significance. And notice what he's doing. He's appointing these 11 men. There will be a 12th one. What's his name? The Apostle Paul. He will, he's establishing these 12 men as the Senate for the New Testament government. So these boys are about to be elevated, aren't they? All right. So now I want you to listen to what he goes on to say, because this is quite fascinating. In order that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what they are called to do. Now I'll deal with that later in terms of the significance of that, because it's not a physical throne and it's not the physical 12 tribes. And the Lord said unto Simon, now immediately after he tells them about this elevation, Immediately after elevation is pronounced, he has to tell Peter, Peter, you are in trouble. So I want you to capture it because this here is going to be the preface for the firewall metaphor that we're about to read. So he tells all 11 of them, hey, you guys are about to be elevated. This thing is about to kick off. You're going to be well known all around the world. You're going to be some of the most noted persons on the planet. Your relevance and significance is going to be massive in the world. Can you imagine that kind of expectation and what it might do to your head if you're not right? And immediately he said, Peter, now brother, you're in trouble. And I want you to capture what he's going to say, because this is going to help you understand what Bunyan is about to talk about. He says, and the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, listen, Simon, behold. Now, behold here doesn't mean look at something. It means pay attention. Simon, Simon, pay attention. Satan has desired to have you. Okay, this is not theatrics. This is important for you to know. Okay, Satan has desired to have you. Imagine the son of the living God having to tell you, that the most di diabolical foe in the universe has picked you out. See? That's serious. Don't you think? This is not generalized across the board, so I'm going to help you guys because you're here now. The devil is not everywhere present. 
Stop making him like God. He's not like God. But people do that all the time. They talk like the devil is in a eight billion places at the same time. It's not true. And not even and, and not even demons are everywhere present. Every space in the world is not filled with demons. Okay? There are lots of demons, probably millions, but that doesn't mean that they fill every space in the world. That would be a caricature on our part, and it would not be fair. Why would we make the enemy bigger than he is? And that goes back to what Israel did in Numbers chapter 13 when they said we're like grasshoppers in their eyes. These are huge people, right? We have a tendency to do that when our feet are not grounded in reality. This is why we want to have this. What I'm sharing with you is something very insightful because Jesus, who himself is the, the premier monarch of the universe, is saying to Peter, the most diabolical entity in the universe desires to have you. And what that means is to control you. And, and notice that Jesus gives him specific intel. This is specific intel. This is what he says. He desires to have you in order that he might sift you as wheat. Nice. That's some real specific intel, is it not? Right. So now Peter is warned, isn't he? All right. Very important. This is what this firewall account is about about warning you before it happens because it's important to know about a thing before it happens because once you get into that thing you lose a lot of the sense of what it is if you're not told beforehand what it is at all am i making some sense all right so i, I want to work that through with you a little bit i don't mean to be so dramatic but i can sense that maybe our bodies are here but our heads are not and it's important for you to hear because this really is about one of the most important parts of the seven frames of the interpreter's house um it was asked pilgrim as he got further on down the road um what did you learn when you went through the interpreter's house and Pilgrim said, there were three things that really stood out for me. And first, above all, was the fact that Christ must keep us or we will perish. And he was referring to the account that's before us. So for Pilgrim, you know, the, the, the faithful minister was important, but not that important. The, um, the passion and pliable account was important, but obviously not that important. Uh, the parlor, which you and I just went through, which is very important. But obviously for, for Pilgrim, what was critical is the one we're dealing with now. And then he said, and what else was a problem for me that I needed to pay attention to was the man in the cage and the man that couldn't wake up from Judgment Day. Those three informed me significantly about the importance of making sure that I walk by faith. I hope you get that. And so now listen to what else is said here, because I want to read just first, verse 32, and then I'm going to go to our um, reading in our, our outline. Verse 32, but I have prayed for you. Do you see that? But I have prayed for you. I have prayed for you in order that your faith does not what? And when you are converted, strengthen your brethren. So I'm, I'm going to explain this in a minute. Now, this is really interesting because what, what Christ just did here was tell Peter that he's about to engage the firewall of faith. Okay? He's just telling Peter, Peter, you're about to go through something that you're not going to be able to handle of yourself. 
I've already actually put a petition in to make sure that your faith doesn't completely collapse. Right, so the insight in this statement is extremely important because if you fail to get it, then you'll fail to understand the lesson that's at hand with the firewall. So let me read through the uh, article in your outline. You have the outline there so you can read through. Um, this is what uh, it says, a fire burning against the wall. Then I saw in my dream that the interpreter took Christian by the hand and led him into a place where was a what? All right, so the first thing that Christian sees when interpreter guides him into this new revelation was what? I want you to get that. The first thing he sees is fire. So we're going to actually categorize all of the components that he sees. It's going to help you. He saw fire first, okay? And then notice what it goes on to say. He says, I saw fire. And what was that fire doing? Burning against the wall. So now what we have are two components in a complete composite. One is attached to the other, right? They're not the same. They're attached. A fire burning up against a wall. That's, this, is, this is an allegory. It's a story. It's a narrative. But all the pieces have to come together, which means um, Christian is paying attention, isn't he? Because he's being asked, what do you see? That's how the prophets were when they had visions in the scripture. What do you see, right? And this is what I pray for us. God, open our eyes so we can see what you see. Because he can show you something, but if you are distracted, you will miss what he showed you. And so it's really good when you have the, remember I told you what kind of people we want to be? We want to be expository what? Listeners. People that listen actively. Right. Because, you know, the devil always lying. Right. And if he's not lying, you're lying to yourself and you want to be able to catch yourself when you're lying to yourself. So oh, just that's wrong. That's the boy. That's wrong. Please stop, man. Stop. And, and then it goes on. And he says he led him to where the fire was burning. And then he saw one standing by it. Do you guys see that? So first a fire up against the wall, two and one standing by it, three. Now, please listen to what he just said. This is what I, what? Saw. This is what I saw. It's important for you to capture that. One standing by the wall. And he was always casting much water upon the fire. That's what the, uh, uh, this little uh, pronoun it is. To do what? Quench it. Yet the fire burn higher and hotter. So Peter, I mean, uh, Christian is recalling the event as it was from top to the bottom. And it's important for you to know this is all that he saw. Until interpreter takes him and repositions him, all he sees is this event. You keeping up with me? Because this is important to know. This part that he sees is not faith. It's sight. It's important for you to get these categories. We'll drill down into it tomorrow. That's why the interpreter is asking him, what do you see? What I see is what's in front of me. What I see is obvious. What I see is, is what we would call the empirical facts of the space that I'm in. Like if someone were to say, Pastor, what do you see? I see about 50, 60 people in this room. 
What don't I see? I don't see your heart. I don't see your heart. So there are things I see, but there are things I don't see. Now, you guys understand me. And this is what the wall is about to do. The wall is about to demonstrate a delineation between the things seen and the things not seen. See, a wall is a barrier. It's a dividing line. It's going to create a categorical distinction here that you and I need to learn from. Okay, it's very important for you to get it. So now notice what he goes on. Then said Christian, <laughs> I love this. Now, what does that mean? What I saw is one thing. And this is also what we, how we um, deal with our hermeneutics in our church, how to interpret the Bible. Uh, observation is necessary, then interpretation, okay, then application. So observation is to see a thing for what it is, and then interpretation is to understand what it means. And then application is to understand how to engage what it means, since now I see it, I understand it, and I want to relate properly to it. That's how we read our Bibles. Did that make some sense? I, I want to see a thing for what it is. I don't want to distort it. We're not postmodernists. We don't believe in lies. We don't believe in magic. Truth is when something is revealed for what it is. Aletheia taught some of you guys that last night in our Monday class. Jesus is the truth. That means he unveils things for what it really is. And you and I are not dealing with uh, truth until we see things for what it is. And if that's true, you and I know this, that even when it comes to relationships, we don't know people until we know their heart. Is that true? Right. So they can put up a firewall with all kind of presentations up front. But what's going on behind that firewall? God has to take you behind that wall and show it to you, doesn't he? All right, so it's important for you to understand what's going on with the imagery here that's going to take us a bit deeper. Notice what uh, interpreter said uh, when Christian said, what means this? The interpreter answered, the fire is the work of grace that is wrought in the heart. He that casts water upon it to extinguish it and put it out is the what? All right, so it's very important. I'm going to, all we're doing is laying down a framework now. I'm just laying down a framework Christian did not know who it was that was trying to put the water out. You guys got that? Of course. So again, remember what we said. We can see a thing, but not know what it means. Right? So that's like being a babe that requires a mature person to open your eyes. Remember the teacher? He's a guide to the blind. He's a teacher of babes. So a, a young person may see a thing, but don't understand what it means until mama and daddy or the older person says, hey, what you're seeing is this. Now the scales falls from his eyes. He go, whoa, that's the devil. Yep, that's the devil. Now he's about to begin to understand something of what we call the schema of the devil the methodologies of the devil. Because now that he's kind of gotten a, uh, an ID of his person, wouldn't uh, Pilgrim want to know something about his work? Of course, because that's what God would have you and I to know. He would have us to know the wiles of the wicked one, would he not? Now, right, in order for us to be able to identify and properly def uh, define what's going on in this space called the mystery of the kingdom of God, he goes on to say, um, uh, the one who is constantly seeking to extinguish the fire is the devil. But in that you see the fire, notwithstanding, burn higher and hotter. You will also see the reason of it. 
Do you see that? All right, so don't move too quick. No shouting and jumping, hooping and hollering. You got to learn something here. So he sees something, but he does not see something. It's important to know that he sees, but he does not see enough. Does that make sense? And this is how liars work. This is how the devil works. He will show you certain things, making you think you see everything, but you don't see enough to know the truth about it. Until God takes you by the hand and gives you a complete bird's eye view, you and I only see in part. That makes sense, right? Good. So now notice what interpreter says. You will also see the reason of it. So he had him about the what? Well, that means he grabbed his hand and he took him. That is the role of the guide. Okay, that is the term that's used in John 16, 8, when he says, and when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you. It's the idea of taking you by the hand and walking you to where you need to be, putting you in a position to understand what's going on, or putting you in a position of safety, or putting you in a position of strategic advantage. Does that make some sense? Right, so a guide has to take us when we're blind by the hand. Maybe when we get a little bit more mature, we can just follow him. I don't know. Some of us are so mischievous. The moment God takes his hand off of us, we're just running all over the place, quite frankly. And that's why he has a long rod and he has a whack us upside the head. And then the hook has to drag us back in because we're such promiscuous creatures. Would you agree? All right, promiscuous creatures. So listen to it. Because this is one of the most sobering uh, uh, allegories in the whole seven it, to me. I know the other ones get alarming, but this one is interesting because I'm going to tell you why before we close tonight. And then again, we'll take it up deeply tomorrow night in our Wednesday class. He goes on to say, so he had me about the backside of the what? The backside of the wall. So a wall has a front side. This is what we call the storefront. And then the wall has a backside, right? Everything that is three-dimensionally made has two sides to it. That's just the nature of a thing, right? So what is he doing when he tells uh, Pilgrim, you got to go to the backside? This is why I have talked about our study being the mystery of what? Iniquity and of what? Godliness. Mystery is always the fact that there are things going on in a deeper spiritual dimension that you cannot see with the naked eye. Didn't I talk about that before? All right. Did I tell you that most of the stuff that's going on in your Christian life is a mystery? Did I tell you that? Right, and I can tell you that most of what goes on in your physical life is a mystery too. If you actually capture Mysterion, if you capture the concept that you and I live within the framework of a mystery, then you can prepare yourself to be in a position to learn about things that you don't know. Can you imagine that there are, let's say, 3 billion people on the planet, there are 8 billion, but 3 billion people on the planet who actually believe that what they see is all there is. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine people who are being educated to believe what we call naturalism? Naturalism is the idea that the only thing that exists is what you and I can see and what you and I can perceive with our natural empirical senses. Can you imagine people buying into that silly, foolish notion? But they do. Right. And in so doing, they're defying all kinds of other phenomena. Would you agree with that? They are defying all kinds of other phenomena. So what that means is that they're blinded in their mind. 
It's not that they're blinded from the opportunity to see a thing more comprehensively. It's that they're blinded where? Where? And that means they're babies, right? So this is, this is the idea also that when a person is not truly born again, they're always in an infant state. Because in an infant state, the only thing that you can know is what you know naturally. But what if the world was made by spirit? Then the, the framework of everything that's made is made and sustained by things you don't see. Isn't that what Paul argued? I told you he argued the cosmos. Didn't he argue that? He argued, he says, the cosmological argument is that the things that are made are clearly made by things we can't see. Isn't that what he said? So, so if you buy the argument of the cosmos being made by something that can't be seen, then we have to know there's more to this thing than meets the eye. Right, so I'm taking my time because I don't want you to not be blessed by this study. Because the analogy in the study, the allegory in the study is about the believer entering into spaces in his life, her life, where things are happening that they cannot comprehend. God will put you in those places. He'll put you in places where it's not possible on your part to comprehend it. See what I'm getting at? This is, this is why our two um, case studies are going to be Peter and Job. Because I, I can give you many other biblical case studies, but these two are great. Because Peter is being warned up front that you're about to enter into what I am calling the fog of what? War. That's in your first point, right? That's your first point. You got, you got an outline. It's, it's called the first point, right? So you and I have talked about the fog of war, have we not? I've talked to you about the fog of war. The fog of war is a strategy on the part of the enemy to destroy your capacity to know where you are and what's going on and how you may appropriately engage it in order that you might advance up out of that fog. Warfare requires fog. For enemy to get near to you and the enemy has to put you in a position where you can't see him. So fog is always a metaphor for clouding the mind, clouding the judgment impeding your progress, hindering your sense of groundedness, rerouting you, distracting you, putting you in a place where you're looking one way and something else is going on here, but you're in such a fog, you don't know what you're looking at. That's a fog of war. Does that make some sense? Of course it does because that's the way that it is. And Peter is about to go into the fog of war. Jesus told him. And when you get into that fog, Peter... Satan is going to want to toss you to and fro like a sifter, point you through the sifter. And we're going to talk about that because think about what he's saying to Peter. Peter, you're getting ready to lose it, dude. And he did, didn't he? Did Peter lose it? He lost it badly. He lost it badly because he was in the fog. He was in the fog. Did my brother Job lose it? He lost it badly because he was in the fog. Now, Peter, unlike Job, Peter at least had the gracious hand of the master telling him, I'm going to get you through this. And, and we're going to talk about why that's important as a prerequisite 
to going into the fall. But Job had no such forewarning. Okay, are you guys following me? And both are getting ready to deal with a firewall of faith metaphor that's going to really deconstruct them, break them down. I mean, break them down because they don't have any handles, no handles. They can't find their way out of this. This is what I meant by earlier that some of you may know what I'm talking about from experience, but a lot of you don't because you haven't gone through that severe of a testing to know what it feels like to be completely lost in a trial. See what I'm getting at? Okay. Let me finish up the account here. We got about 15 more minutes. I want to lay down some principles in our outline and then uh, we're going to, we're going to go to work tomorrow. So make sure you take a nap before 630. Um, he says, the fire notwithstanding burns hotter and hotter. You will also see the reason for it. So he had me about the backside of the wall where he saw a man with a vessel of oil in his hand of which he did also continually cast. Here's the parentheses. Are you there? But what? But what? Meaning that the person in the midst of that fog of war cannot perceive what it is that's sustaining him. Did you get that? Right, this is where we have to work it through lest we lose the benefit. This is what happened to Peter. Peter was told beforehand. It didn't help Peter at all. Didn't help him at all. Did it? Did, did it help Peter at all? Didn't help him at all. Didn't help Pe Peter at all. Please listen carefully to this. Peter was told beforehand, didn't help Peter at all. It was not meant to help Peter then. It was only meant to help Peter later. Because Peter was of a frame of mind where the Lord had to really discipline him in the midst of the fog of war so that Peter could be persuaded that he did not really know as much he, as he thought he knew. Because he really thought he knew something. A lot of people are there. So even though the Lord did not hold Peter's hand, what he did was restrain Peter's outcome so that after that trial, he may, see, and what I mean by that is that Peter sinned grievously. Do you hear me? It was a bad sin. It, it, was a, it was a sin that would constitute him being an apostate. He could have easily been rejected from the apostolate. His behavior was heinously criminal. The only sin he didn't do in all that he did was blasphemy against the Holy Ghost. So sometimes God will take you and me through a trial that will humble us so se severely. And that's what this firewall trial is about. To put you in a place where if you're thinking that you got this, you're wrong. This is very important to capture. Let me finish. Notice what he goes, goes on to say. Um, he did it secretly. Uh, he, he, he did it continually, cast the oil upon it secretly into the fire. Then said Christian, what means this? I love that. There he is. He's Socratic. Is he not? Is he not? Is he not an expository listener? What is he saying? Uh, I'm not getting it. I'm not getting it. I'm not. So, you know, a lot of people are so proud that they sit here and listen and they'll act like, uh-huh, I got the, oh, yeah, yeah. You don't get it. 
If I were to ask you a question, you wouldn't be keeping up with me. You wouldn't be dividing the lines. You wouldn't be gaining clarity on each proposition. You'd be struggling with the whole thing when you walk away. This is why I tell you, if you listen to me, you got to listen how many times? At least. Like if you're serious about grasping truth at the fundamental level, truth has to mean enough for you to listen to it over and over and over and over again. Because we're just slow. We're yellow bus Christians. God loves us. He loves us. My bus is hot yellow. I'm telling you now. I feel so bad about how slow I am. This is crazy. I am slow. Anybody know what I mean by that? Like slow, like Lord. I'm so glad that you're the ancient of days because you need that much time for me to catch up. <laughs> hey, y'all, Pastor Slow, y'all, y'all got to wait on him. Then said Christian, what does this mean? And the interpreter said, this is Christ who continually with the oil of grace maintains the work already begun in the heart. See, this is still a heart matter. This is still a heart matter. This is still a heart matter. Keeping up with me, this is still a heart matter. Because the heart matter is where the salvation is. This is where the warfare is. This is where the battle is. It's where sanctification is, right? It's where the witness is. It's, 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 it's the sanctum. It's the sanctum of God. The heart is the sanctum. That's where God dwells. It's crazy. Because if you're thinking things through with me, you know that if God is dwelling there, the enemy wants to be there too. Right. So when you meet Christians who are oblivious to where the enemy is, you say, you haven't been taught well. Because the enemy is always anywhere Christ is trying to establish his throne. This is why Jesus told Peter, Peter, you're in trouble, dude. You guys got that? You're in trouble, my brother. You've been with me for three and a half years, and there are a few fundamentals that you have missed. And a few fundamentals. Now, Peter is going to be given the keys to the kingdom, but he's been rolling with Jesus for three and a half years, and there have been some things he has substantially left off with learning, has he not? And you and I are no better than him. We're no better than him. This is where humility is so important. He goes on to say, by the means of which, notwithstanding what the devil can do, the soul of his people proved gracious still. And in that you saw that the man stood behind the wall to maintain the fire. This is to instruct you. This is to teach you. This is to educate you, to discipline you. It is to discipline the believer that he's behind and not visibly up front is to teach you, to instruct you. Does that make some sense? Right. Listen to what he says. This is to teach you that it is hard for the tempted to see how this work of grace is maintained in the soul. Right. So what Bunyan just did right there was tell the Christian there is a limitation to your cognitive capacity to comprehend what God is doing in your life. That if you are only thinking that all I need to do is have an intellectual understanding of what's going on, you are going to be set up, in many cases, to collapse 
And it only follows that that will happen, right? Are you guys keeping up with me? I'm getting ready to show you the point. I'm getting ready to show you the point here. The limitations of human intellect, the ability to reason things through, the, um, the, the discipline of being able to analytically work through conundrums, the mysteries of events, the providences of God, particularly in the fog of warfare, the, the failure to be able to reason your way through a thing is the reason why God demands that you understand what it means to walk by faith. Did that make sense? Right, and so even there the Christian will say I'm walking by faith, but he's not. And a kind of trial has to come to utterly remove all of those uh, confidences that he's rooted in, and we could do a list of them, where he has really substituted faith for a kind of protocol of behavior that allows him to feel comfortable in his Christianity because he's actually able to reason through everything that he's going through. That makes sense, doesn't it? I'm walking by faith. No, you're not. No, 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 you're not. You're walking by the predictability of patterns that are established in your life for which you have confidence because they're obvious, they're empirical, and they work. You and I are pragmatic creatures. I'm happy when things go my way. I'm the only one in the room happy when things go my way. Okay, I'm just saying. I'm like super happy when, when God wakes up and says, I'm here, Jesse, whatever you need, let's roll. I'm super happy. But that is the most precarious position you can be in if both of your feet are planted on what you know. You're, you're in a precarious position because now you can't actually negotiate a fog scenario. Am I, am I making some sense? Am I making some sense, sis? Yeah. A fog scenario will come up where now you don't have those levers. See what I'm getting at? All right, so there's some, a few things in our outline that I want to talk about. I've got five more minutes. Go to your outline because I want to just kind of highlight some things and talk about some things. I'm going to raise a few questions and we'll go in deep, deeper. So our four major points in our outline for tomorrow night I want to drill down into the fog of war for the what? The fog of war for the believer. I'm not talking about a fog of war for unbelievers. Unbelievers are in a perpetual fog, okay? Right, I mean, because, you know, the hidden hand that controls everything is not believed by them. Okay, and so the fog of the believer is what you and I need to deal, deal with and, and how, to, how to handle that. Uh, and so sub so point A says, recognize when you are in it. Recognize when you're in it. Did you guys just get that? So fog of war requires first and foremost that you recognize when you're in it. Sometimes you'll hang out with a brother or sister in Christ and they will be in a fog of war. Listen to me. And they won't know they're in it. This is why you need mature upline to constantly uh, check in with mature upline who actually knows warfare. You need them to help you because if you're like immature, if you're, you know, a new babe in Christ, if you're just not discerning, you will be in a fog of war and you won't know it. Fog settles in imperceptibly. It is incremental. 
fog gradually develops into a kind of density that diminishes your long sight vision. Does that make some sense? When the fog settles in imperceptibly, it just gradually, slowly goes dark. And then you're walking in a kind of real myopic state. That makes sense. And you don't even know you're in that myopic state. But there are all kinds of symptoms and evidences of it, of which other people who are mature enough can pick up on those symptoms and say, hey, 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 you're in a fog. Does that make some sense? One of the last studies in our DOG, Daughters of Grace, not the last, but three studies before it, we dealt with what is called the fog, being in the fog. Some of you guys remember that, the fog. It is a psychological concept of uh, losing a sense of long distance range. It's a loss of clarity of your environment. It's a loss of peripheral vision. It's a loss of awareness as to where you are. You can become... Um, uh, you can become disambiguated, you can become ungrounded, you can become dislodged from being grounded, you can find yourself kind of just spacing out when you're in a fog of war. And the first thing to be able to do is recognize that you're in it. You guys got that? Uh, Sub so point B, and, and again, we'll unpack this more fully tomorrow. Uh, we are warned that it is what? We're warned that it is coming by the text that's in front of us, and we're also warned by other verses, and those other verses in your Bible tells you that you and I go through trials. God tries the righteous. Did that make some sense? So, so they're coming, and the believer is told not to act like they are not coming. Now, who's going to help us with that is Peter. So I'm going to close out point number one this way. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 4, 12. I love this. I've got a few questions to ask you, and then we'll close down. We'll pick up tomorrow. So I told you I want Peter as a case study because he's a brother that's going to come out of this particular fog, and he's going to be the better for it. And he's going to be one of those brothers constantly telling you to watch out for the fog. <laughs> you know, his ministry is warning folks about the fog, okay? Uh, and sometimes the reason you go through such a peculiar hellish event is in order that you be the one carrying the placard to let people know, hey, there's a fog down this road, right? And so here's what Peter says. Do not, beloved, do not think it what? Do not. So don't lose your sense of normalcy. Don't actually engage in unreeling. So I'll talk about that just a little bit. Unreeling is a psychological term that describes a person's not wanting to believe that something is happening. Did that make sense? That's what a lot of people did during COVID. They didn't want to believe that what was happening was strategic, that it was a, a cohort of events that were intentional and planned to happen. They didn't want to. And it would be the same way when you and I are in a situation where a crisis comes. This is the word. Crisis, when we first get hit with a crisis and that crisis sustains, we want to believe that it's not happening. Did that make sense? We want to unreal it. It was a young girl who was in the present Gaza war, the war in Gaza, uh, and these fools dropped bombs on her family's home. And um, 
the family has strategically said half of us are going to stay here, the other half are going to stay at another house because in these kind of wars, they don't mind killing the whole family at once. <clears throat> so half of the family stayed at another house. This family stayed here. This home blew up almost everybody except this little girl and her brother. Father, sister, everybody died. This little girl was in the hospital. Her brother went to the hospital where she was. And when her, her, her brother saw her, um, she had both of her legs gone, one of her arms gone. She's about 12 years old. And she was in a semi-comatose state, but able to talk to him. And what she said immediately to her brother was this. Are we dreaming? Are we in a dream? Because I feel like we're in a dream and we haven't awakened yet. That's called unreeling. That, that's when you choose not to believe that what is happening is happening because you don't want to have to follow the logical outcome of the event. Does that make some sense? Right. All of us will be in, inclined to do that. Okay, and so I, sh I share that with you because it's important to know that the um, the uh, neurological makeup of our brains is one in which it strives to survive. So when we're in the limbic system mode of fright, flight, fight, we are rationalizing in some kind of way in order to be able to manage what's going on. And sometimes the only way you can manage what's going on is to believe other than what's going on, because if you believe what's going on, you will have to admit that you're not in control. And this is often why people despise God, because they don't want God to be in control. Did you hear what I just stated? And, and it's because they can't reconcile God being God with all of the evils that are going on in the world. I know, I know the arguments, the classic arguments well, and you should too, because the human being that struggles with God being God in a world full of all kinds of evil like this are trying to understand how God could be good while he allows all this evil to take place. And, and imagine, and, and imagine, I, 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 I would tell you to be, gracious because if you're not then you're you're like job's three friends because this is where we're going with job and then his three friends thought again that they could see the whole picture and god hadn't taken them behind the firewall and they're running off at the mouth all kind of bible verses am i making some sense and christians are so quick to do it so quick to do it. We, 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 we got to help God, right? Got to help God. God's reputation is on the line now. One little Lilliputian human being is saying, I can't trust God. Now you're going to rush in to try to help God when God's doing something in their life by exposing their lack of trust, right? God's not capricious. God's not mean. God's not evil. Right. And so if you actually believe God is good, sometimes you just stay off the matter and not act like, you know, you know what you're doing. I'm making some sense. Am I making some sense? Right. So when Peter says, beloved, do not create an alienation in your mind. Do not create an alienation in your mind concerning fiery trials. 
Do you see it? He didn't say trials. Fiery trials. Because that's what we're dealing with with the firewall. The firewall is not just your typical trial. You can have typical trials where you can see everything. You know God is there. You know what's going on, et cetera, et cetera. And all you have to do is remember what you're supposed to do and you get through that trial. This kind of trial here utterly destroys all handles. And I, I see what Peter is doing. And here's the other thing. I should stop here. Here's what Peter is doing, and here's what Bunyan is doing, too. What Bunyan is doing is taking, uh, he's taking categories of metaphors, and he's, he's reversing them. In this metaphor, the enemy is using water to pour upon the fire. In the previous metaphor, the water was a cleansing mechanism. Remember that? So he's helping us to understand how that frequently the metaphors will cross over. They will reverse themselves depending on who's employing them and why. A note for you for Friday if we don't get through it on uh, Wednesday. And I'm probably, we won't because this foundation is so important, isn't it? What's in the water? You have to think that through. What's in the, the water's a metaphor, is it not? It's a metaphor of whatever the enemy uses to diminish your faith with the objective of extinguishing it. So this is a completely apropos question, would you not say? What's in the water? What would be those elements? What would be those categories? What would be those strategies? What would be those methodologies? What would be those means by which the enemy seeks to diminish and extinguish your faith? That's really good, isn't it? Because you, you and I can't just go away with the metaphor of water. It would simply mean, like I said, you are observing it, but you don't understand what the analogy means. This is why I want us to drill down deep into it. The enemy is not throwing literal water on you. That, I would have him hanging out around me every day if that was the case. I need a bath every day. No, this is bad water. Right? Right, so all water is not good water. And, and it's important to understand that the water is in juxtaposition to the what? Fire. Peter is warning about the fiery trials and because he's speaking to his, his uh, saints who are scattered abroad, he uses the term Babylon to the saints that are scattered abroad in Babylon. When Peter says, do not think it's strange to fiery trials you're going through, he's taking us back to the three Hebrew boys. Is he not? Sister, you know the three Hebrew boys? Your sister will tell you. Your sister will tell you when you're sitting by. I know y'all not strangers. She will tell you. That's not a small trial those men went through, was it? That was no small trial. That was a serious trial. That's the kind of trial. I don't want to go through that trial. They would have to tie me hand and foot, shut my mouth, and throw me in. If God didn't just give me a kind of overwhelming grace... I'm not going to lie. You might see, because what Peter is getting ready to go through, he's the one running around telling everybody all that he will do for the Lord. The next verse after Christ tells him, Peter, you are, you, you, you're getting ready to fall. Lord, I'll go with you anywhere. I'll die for you. I'll kill for you. Peter, look, before the crow 
crows, the cock crows thrice, you're going to deny me three times. Do you see that? And that's because Peter is like a lot of Christians, ignorant of their own weakness. See what I'm saying? We can be that. We can run off at the mouth. It's a good thing that God doesn't put us into a trial every time we quote a Bible verse. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to stop right there. We'll pick up. We'll pick up next. We'll pick up tomorrow night.